0: Welcome back to the All Outdoors Photography Podcast, where we share experiences out in the field and educate others through landscapes, wildlife, macro, and more with photographers from around the world. And today we have Tony Baltazar on the show. He's a nature and landscape photographer from New England. Welcome, Tony. Um, go, ahead, go ahead and start with this question here. Tell us about a time when you're absolutely in awe of the natural scene in front of you and how it felt to be in that moment.
1: Uh, yeah, that's a that's a great first question. I can remember a time... In Oregon, shooting the Haceta headlight. And we were up on the, if you've ever been there, you know there are essentially two, two locations from which you can, um, shoot the, shoot the light from. And we were just up on the hillside and, uh, the wind was whipping and it was mostly cloudy. And we just kind of sat there and waited and waited and waited. And then finally we had this, little break in the light a break in the clouds that let just enough light in for this image and for for us to create our images and uh, you know we sat there probably a total of an hour and a half for 15 second burst of light and you know it was wonderful to get the image that we wanted but it was more about just being there and being somewhat in the elements on the Oregon coast um, uh, yeah, that's a moment that that I'll carry with me for a long time. I really
2: uh, that struck me in in quite a profound way. I'll say that. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> do you do you find those kind of moments rare, or do you experience it kind of every time you go out in the field?
1: <laughs> I wish I experienced them every time I went out in the field. Uh, you know, I would say that um, <laughs> when I slow myself down and when I just take stock of where I am and uh be less concerned about creating an image and more concerned about being present. I would say that those experiences happen more frequently than than if I am not um they are and I try to because all too often you go out in the field and you come home and there's a a shot that you didn't quite get or. Uh, things didn't come together like you had hoped. And if your goal is to always come home with a perfect shot and not experience nature, then I think you're missing the, you know, the bigger picture of it all. And so I do try to take a moment with each experience and try to take it all in as much as possible and, and just really enjoy the scene and the setting and, uh, just be thankful for and grateful for the experience to be out there. But I can't say I'm perfect at it. Um, But I know that when I slow myself down and do those experiences tend to be
0: uh, more fulfilling and greater in the long run. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially when you're traveling abroad like that, like on the Oregon coast, it's like you may be like if you dropped a new location, very excited and you may rush through like your compositions or something. But if you really just kind of take a step back and, you know, distance yourself. You really kind of soak in this scene in front of you and you might take better images as a result too.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And I think, you know, I've seen, I've traveled quite a bit for photography and I've seen people get frustrated that conditions aren't perfect. You know, they think, well, this is my one opportunity to be here and the the light isn't right and so on and so forth. And, you know, the, the chances of getting The light you want or the conditions you want on the exact time and day that you're going to be there are, you know, pretty low when you kind of think about it in the grand scheme. You can, you can plan, of course, and, um, you could try to be there when you think the conditions are going to be, um, are going to be ripe. But, but overall, it's still, you know, a lot, a lot of that is out of your control or almost all of it is out of your control. So when you go to these places, specifically for photography and when you don't uh, uh, get the shot you want if that's the purpose you're there it's going to be a lot more disappointment than than not and so uh, to try to put yourself there and be in the time and space and be present there and allow the photography to come to you in a way I think does result in certainly a better experience and then many times a, uh, a better image in the end as well yeah I would agree with that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, what kind of <clears throat> photos are you like setting out to take when you go out in nature?
1: Uh, I, you know, I do really two types of photography: uh, landscape photography, and then uh, a lot of wild bird photography. Every once in a while, I'll I'll um, capture a, uh, some deer or porcupines or other ant bears and stuff like that but that's kind of secondary that that's because those animals happen to be (laughs) the location i happen to be in and i was um lucky enough to capture them i don't actually scout those out um so it it is a little bit seasonal for me so for for example right now we're getting ready for migratory birds to return to new england and so uh, i'm pretty much out every day looking for uh, uh birds and trying to to capture wild birds as they migrate north, uh, so not doing a ton of landscape work right now, but that'll shift and I'll, I'll begin to do more landscape work. And you know, <clears throat> we can talk about this, but I really like the the multiple genres. I like the the ability to do things other than just uh, go out there with my you know wide angle lens and try to create a landscape. I, I like the the challenge of also trying to shoot wild birds that. Uh, have no idea that you're trying to (laughs) take take an image of them and and are not going to follow your rules and it's just a fun kind of a new challenge and i i love birds so it it really kind of is a is a fun um genre for me to explore as well
2: yeah for sure that's uh, that's great that you're kind of like combining the two to as well Uh, i know in the past you've given like a lot of talks on this but uh, do you want to kind of go into some of the lessons you've learned about kind of switching back and forth between the two genres?
1: Yeah, you know it's really interesting because when I started to do both of them, I thought, well, this will be great. I'll I'll get up early in the morning and I'll I'll do some landscape work while the light is you know sunrise or what have you, and then you know I'll extend my day and I'll do some more. I'll put on my different lenses and I'll go shoot birds. And what I found really over time is that it, it's I kind of do one or the other. I've done both out in the field at the same time, or at least on the same day, but I tend to concentrate on either landscapes or birds depending on location, time of year, things of that nature. Um, And so, um, you know, the lesson, a couple of the big lessons I've learned is I, you know, I uh, I was, I, this, um, I've been in education for a long time, uh, school, you know, school, public schools, and you know, we have, um, kids who, I've seen kids more and more these days when it comes to athletic, like being uh, athletic, to try to begin to specialize in one sport or another. And, and I've always encouraged them to play multiple sports because the, the skills that you're going to learn in their spring sport are going to help you in your winter sport and your winter sport is going to help you in your fall sport, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's just those, those skills all come together and merge and pollinate one another, and they, you know, what you learn in one sport's gonna help you become a better athlete overall, so on and so forth. Well, I I kind of believe the same thing with photography. Um, If you shoot in multiple genres, and in my case, landscape and wild bird, I think I become better in both of them. So, um, for example, uh, wild bird photography has taught me to uh, be ready uh, cause they're going to show themselves really when they're ready and you have to be, you have to have your camera at the ready at all times and then you got to be ready to shoot. And, uh, but at the same time, uh, that muscle memory from landscape work is helping me to try to position myself in a place where the bird, um, uh, it might make for a better image. Uh, I, I keep in try to keep in mind the backgrounds of the birds. I try to keep in mind where the light is. All of these, you know, skills that I've learned with landscape where I've, where I've had the, the ability to take my time and get my tripod out and position myself in such a way that all just gets sped up when it comes to the bird photography. And then uh, vice versa, you know, with birds, you've got to be incredibly patient. And you, if you don't, get the shot one day, you've got to keep going out and get, getting it and getting it and trying, and trying, and try. Same thing with landscapes. I've gone to locations uh, four, five, six, seven, eight times for a shot that, in my mind, you know, um, hadn't come together yet. And so the um, that that willingness to be patient and continue to try to get back and get the shot that you want or or to um, have the, uh, I guess, stick with it, is, if that's a word, stick-to-itiveness, to continue to try to get the shot that you've envisioned. Um, I think that's come from my bird photography because you know, I might find a bird in the field that I'm trying to get a shot of and I might miss it that day, but if I go back the next day or the day after, he, he or she might be back and I'll just continue to try to get that shot. So that patience and stick-to-itiveness I think has helped in both areas as well.
2: That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. so uh, you started with landscapes. So that, that involves kind of a lot of composition. Yeah, that's kind of the the number one thing there. Have you applied any of that to your wildlife? Well, I've
1: tried to. Uh, Again, the birds don't (laughs) always cooperate, right? Like, they're not always going to sit on the rule of thirds, uh, or Uh the right branch, or what have you. Um, uh, Certainly, I try to keep all of those things in mind. So, I try to be on the right side of the sun, for example. So, I want to be shooting with the sun in my back as much as possible. I want to have the light on them as much as I can. I want to Try to position them so that their background is not distracting. Um, it you know it's a lot like landscape photography in that you uh, are trying to exclude all of the stuff that isn't going to help you tell your story. So I and I really firmly believe that making images is all about telling stories. And in landscape work, we we try to limit the story to only that which is essential for the image. And it's the same thing with birds. You know I try to put myself in a position where Uh, I'm going to be able to tell the story without a lot of clutter, without a lot of distraction, and and with hopefully, you know, ideal light. And you can do a little bit of planning for that. So for example, uh, on the coast here of northern Massachusetts and New Hampshire, there are in the the winter, we get um, short-eared owls that come down from uh, Canada north. Uh, And they're uh, pretty regular in terms of their flight patterns. They They fly at dusk or just before dusk, Uh, and if you know where they're located, you can position yourself so that you have the sun, you know, at your back or your sun in a good spot. You generally have a sense of where they're going to fly to and from, and so it's not that unlike a landscape image in that you can position yourself and you can use tools to try to guess where, you know, where the bird's going to be and how it's going to fly and how you want to position that with the landscape and the sun. But then you got to, it. Then ultimately, it depends on the bird a showing up and doing what you had hoped it would do. And so, um, so it, it the the compositional pieces are really similar. It's just much less predictable,
0: and so you have to be uh-huh. patient in that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Those birds, are, you know, they kind of live on their own schedule, and it's like you just have to really <laughs> in such a way to react to it. I mean, you can yeah. plan so much, but then it's also just the cards you're dealt with it too.
1: Oh, absolutely! But that's the beauty of it, right? Because it's not predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not uh, you're on you're in their turf, and and it, it goes back to our, our initial conversation. If if you're going to go for a walk in the woods and be angry that you didn't find the bird, you're you're not there for the right reason. So yeah. um, that to me, that's mm-hmm. just you know what that means. Tomorrow, I get another chance to go look for it, and um, and that you know that's sort of my my thought process around it.
2: Do you get a higher yeah. rate of success of landscapes, you would say, or wildlife? <laughs> you know, that's – um,
1: <laughs> well, I, can I answer that question with a both? <laughs> um, yeah, sure. It's Well, and I'll, I'll explain why. Uh, I took a group out yesterday morning uh, to shoot wild birds, and my, most of them hadn't done that before. And I, the first thing I told them was, look, for – for you're going to get incredibly frustrated because it's going to take you a hundred uh, shots to get an image that you think is going to look good because these birds move and they, you know, and you can't just um, sit there and wait for the light to be right or what have you, you just got to be ready to go. Whereas in a landscape image, you know, you can uh, obviously wait for the light to be, to be, you know, what you want. So like I said to them, it, it, and I don't know if this is true or not, but if a landscape image for, for every 10 landscape Images out there, you get a keeper. Uh, I'm not saying a portfolio, just a keeper. That that's probably a hundred to one ratio with birds, you know. So I'll go out. Uh, I was out this morning, and you know I probably shot 600 um, images, and there are about five that I'll keep. Or yeah, uh, yeah, not portfolio, but you know they're good enough to keep and you know have around. So, but at the same time, I'm more likely to come home with a with a bird image than the great landscape image because I'm not as dependent upon the light in the conditions when I'm out bird for, doing bird photography because if I'm in the woods the conditions are they're in the woods and so yeah we might get pockets of light and you might get dappled light or you might get fog or some other things but it's 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 not as condition dependent necessarily and um, you know there are hundreds of birds out in the forest so while the one that I'm not there to shoot or excuse me well the one I'm there to shoot may not be there another one might and so while I may not come home with the image that I was hoping for I might come home with another great image and I think that's a little less likely with landscape work um, so you know the answer is both I mean I think if you if you've planned your landscape shoot you get the right conditions you're more likely to come home with you know, the shot as opposed to, uh, again, you just can't plan for the birds to do what you want them to do. And so you might come home with a shot, but it may not be the shot
0: mm-hmm. or the shot that you had envisioned at least too.
1: right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah, so since you do both wildlife and landscape, do you find yourself, I know you say you don't really juggle them necessarily when you go out on a photo trip, but like, do you find yourself incorporating a lot of the landscape in your wildlife and your bird images?
1: I try to, yes. Uh, it's hard, especially with smaller birds because they don't, they move around so quickly. But with the larger birds like eagles and uh, snowy, uh, we have a ton of snowy owls here in the winter, you know, um, I do try to put them in the landscape as much as possible to include the landscape as much as possible. You know, I think like everybody else, I have the portraits, if you will, the, the close-ups, the, um, you know, the, just the real nice shots. Frame the fillers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then I, you know, I also, you know, I have an, uh, one image of a snowy owl that I particularly like, and it was sitting on top of a, a lobster trap that had washed up on shore. And so, to me, that was part of the story. This, you know, the story was this, this snowy owl on top of the lobster trap that was all beat up and damaged by the storm. And both of these things were out in the, um, you know, in the in the wild, and they're beat up and in the conditions. And so that, to me, that was the story. I could have uh, zoomed in on the on the uh, owl more or cropped more or whatever, but I I thought including the landscape with with that uh, lobster trap made sense in that case. So yeah i try to if it makes sense um um yeah uh, i think that's a i think i do try to do that but with smaller birds sometimes you just if they you just got to get them when you can and uh like the warblers and kinglets and things like that um i'm just trying to get great images of good sharp images of them um with their colors and with their markings and so on and so forth so that uh they really stand out in the
0: image. So I can't always plan on them being somewhere. Yeah, definitely. It's I think it's good to incorporate a little bit of both too, especially, you know, get a nice variety with your portfolio. And like you said, uh, like, especially with those kinglets, I mean, they just, they bounce around and never stop moving too.
1: Yeah, they do. I've been, uh, one of the shots I've been trying to get all, all spring uh, the, is the Ruby crown kinglet kind of flaring up that Ruby crown of his. And I've gotten a couple close, but never, you know, when they get real excited, that that hair or the, those feathers will stand up on their head. And I've gotten great shots of seeing the red on the top, but I've never gotten that sort of flare up the top, which is kind
0: of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you find yourself shooting a lot of, like, bird behavior in your images?
1: Yeah, I try to. You know, um, yeah, certainly right now, we're, uh, as we get closer to uh, their return in the mating season, um, uh you know like this we have a cedar waxwings up up with this so they they the male will feed the female berries all the time we see that with sparrows up here quite a bit and then of course all of the um uh warblers are singing up a storm and they're great you know they they can be really great characters to shoot when they're uh, marking their territories or looking for a mate because they're really bold and they're really out there many times and then a uh, larger uh, predatory uh, birds uh, you know I always do my best to get them uh, eating something or catching something or some people are kind of grossed out by it a little bit but that's kind of that's how it works sometimes um, I, uh, I have a, a recent image of mine called uh, Soaked and Starving of a immature bald eagle uh, tearing away at a can of the goose in a rainstorm Ooh. and um, you know it's a I love the image, but some people just don't like it because it's a little bit gruesome and whatnot. So I, I do try to be a little bit wary of that. And then uh, if I can actually um, capture the birds in in mating, that that's that could be a really cool uh, experience to to capture. Um, I've had a little bit of luck with ospreys on that in the past, and um, but it's so fast; it happens so quickly. You just you know, it's one of those things you got to be patient for. and and hope you're there at the right time. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, definitely lightning in the bottom. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah, so do you want to tell us a bit about some of the locations um, you typically shoot in, like the types of environments and whatnot?
1: Yeah. So um, I live along the coast of New Hampshire. Uh, so I tend to, um, you know, my go-to spaces near home tend to be from southern Maine to northern Massachusetts. I live about uh, 25 minutes, 30 minutes from uh, the Parker River Wildlife Refuge, which is down on Plum Island, and that's a great. Obviously, it's a great place for uh, birds and uh, coyotes and fox and uh, all sorts. I've seen deer out there, even though it's sort of out in the middle of them. It's all. It's mostly marsh. Um, but there are about 300 and I want to say 360, maybe 370 different species of birds that have been uh, identified out on Plum Island. And there's some um, great predatory birds out there. Northern Harriers are really common uh, and they are really fun to shoot because they tend to fly uh, not, they don't tend to fly high off the ground. So, you know, there's a few occasions where they're basically eye level with you. And, uh, so you're shooting them eye to eye, which is really cool. Um, I already mentioned the, the owls that, that come by and then bald eagles and ospreys, of course. Uh, a lot of cooper's hawks and sharp hawks. And so you've got a lot of, uh, great predatory birds, uh, peregrine falcons and merlins also. So you've got a lot of great predatory birds there out there that you can capture, uh, hopefully, um, during their hunt. And then, Uh, during migration season, the warblers are just out of control down there as well. So that's a, that's a big place for me. There's also a few places along the coast here. There's, um, um, a state park called Odeon State Park, which is right on the ocean. So we have this wonderful combination of forest and, um, uh, ocean birds that, you know, you're, it's a, I don't know, maybe five miles of walking trails and, you can be anywhere from on the coast or on the beach to the middle of a forest, you know, within, you know, a few steps. So that's a great location, and that has uh, 340, 350 different identified birds in it at different times of the year. So they're, those are two really, uh, you know, strong areas for me. And then I go up to northern New Hampshire as well, uh, the northern tip of New Hampshire, Coas County. Um in the summer, it's great for warblers. That's where a lot of them end up sort of finishing their migration. But it's also a place for moose and ball, a ton of bald eagles up north. And so, uh, so, you know, New Hampshire's got a lot of, uh, pretty diverse wildlife. Um, not as wild, not as <laughs> diverse perhaps as some of the, some of the states down in the southern part of the United States. But for northern, uh, you know, northern climates, it's, you know, we got enough here to, to get out and get some great images.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of that kind of like edge habitats, various, you know, important, I'd say, yep. for a lot of, you know, maximizing the amount of species you get, to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's uh, there's also an area around here. Um, they built a highway uh, over here on the east side of New Hampshire. This was probably 30 years ago or something along those lines. But in, in building it, they had to um, create what's called, the, the or what was called at the time, the Brentwood Mitigation Area, which was, uh, they had these uh, cause they were building the highway over wetlands and wild areas, and so they had to build new wetlands and wild areas, and so there's this uh, area not too far from the house, which has geez, i don't know maybe seven or eight different ponds and wetland areas, and it's really um a lot of lot of diversity of birds in there as well but it but as you talk about these edge areas and that's exactly what it's like, um you'll go from walking in the middle of the woods to on the edge of the field to the edge of a pond, in these sort of transition areas where there's so many birds and wildlife, different wildlife that live that um, that just really react well or survive well, I guess I should say, in these transition areas.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. Do you use eBird at all?
1: All the time. Yeah, all the time. Uh, <laughs> you know that that gives me a sense of that's certainly what's migrating in and what have you. Um, but it, it's not always, you know, there's a lot of local knowledge as well. Um, we try to be uh, protective, if you will, and respectful of the animals as well. So we try to be careful about exposing their locations too much. Um, especially with, you know, we've had issues with snowy owls here in the past. There was a, uh, I would say three or four or five years ago, there was um, uh, just a huge influx of snowy owls. We had somewhere near a hundred and big, big. figured there were somewhere near 180 snowy owls in about a 30-mile stretch along the coast of Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts, and, and maybe it was a little bit longer. It was like Boston up to Maine, so maybe it was more like 50 miles, 60 miles, and the which was wonderful and what have you. But the problem was it just dr- drove a lot of people over this way and. They weren't being respectful of the people's property, but more importantly, they weren't respectful of the animals. They were trying to get up too close to them and stressing them out and things of that nature. And that does happen quite a bit still with, with some of these um, large, like the snow. Everybody everybody loves the snowies, uh, but the same thing with the short-eared owls. So, you know, some of the animals, some of the species we do try to be protective of, I think, and we try to just be, you know, uh, cognizant of the fact that that we don't want large crowds of people to be um, putting them under stress and what have you. So yeah, eBird is is a great resource for t- to be able to see the migra- you know, migration of birds, but is also just local knowledge. Talking to friends, talking you know, having networks and what have you um, help provide you know ideas to where some of the locations might be, so that we can keep that kind of private and for the folks that are going to go in and be respectful of the animals and go in and get out and what have you.
2: What are the steps uh, you tend to take out of the field to be kind of like ethical around the, the wild birds?
1: Yeah. Um, thanks for asking that question. i mean, you know, obviously there's an equipment issue here. Uh, I shouldn't say issue, but you know, one of the reasons why, you know, we get longer lenses is that we, <laughs> is so we can keep some distance to the animals. But even then I've seen people with long lenses be either, You know disrespectful to the animals or to the habitat Um, but you know I I also tend to not um, I limit my time around the around the animals so for example if I find a a snowy owl I'll I'll spend you know 10 or 15 minutes with it but then I'll leave and I try not to uh, bring attention to it um, or crowd it and I take some images and then I I feel like okay he's giving me that time I've taken it and then I'll leave um, I've you know other people I've seen you know I, there's um eastern screech owls that will nest here in the springtime and they kind of uh, it's one of the animals that we try to protect the location of because they, can, they first of all they they tend to nest in neighborhood areas and so you don't want people showing up on people's lawns. But I've been to some locations where people wait six, eight hours, you know, waiting for the owl to come out of the nest. And, you know, I just think that that is too disruptive to the animals. I think you, uh, I don't think it's right. So I, I try to be really respectful of my time there and and not uh, overstay my welcome, if you will. And obviously, you know, follow all the protocols around you know, leaving no trace and so on and so forth. So I, you know, I think people can do it right. I try to do it right. I have a lot of respect for the animals and I really try to be, um, respectful of their space and and time, even though it sounds a little funny to think about time with animals, but, you know, I do feel like, uh, they are, allowing me to be a part of their life for that amount of time and I don't want to overstay my welcome if that makes any sense
2: mm-hmm. yeah for Definitely. sure that's probably something you had to learn all new you know when you were kind of moving towards bird photography from landscapes I know for me personally it's just not anything I ever really thought about So,
1: yeah although I, I was in college I was a biology major and studied ornithology so I I studied that before I became um a photographer. So oh, I think yeah, so I think that uh you know some of that sense of of respect for the wildlife was probably born at that time and I've just always kind of felt that way.
2: Got it. Yeah. Do they yeah, teach that's a awesome lot about me.
0: ethics in class?
1: No, I wouldn't say that. no, I don't think we've, we we've learned a lot about ethics in class. I just think uh you know at that level when you're studying animals, animal behavior, ornithology, what have you at the collegiate level. I think, you know, there's a, these aren't like introductory level classes, you know, or they weren't at the time, Uh, you know, so I think the people that are interested in that already understand, uh, some of the ethics around caring for the space and what have you. So, um, so yeah, at least I would hope so, but no, I don't remember it being taught a whole lot. Um, yeah. You know, the other thing, too, we are talking about equipment. There are times when I'm out there, if I'm doing landscape work, and I don't have my longer lenses with me, and I see, and I'll see something. I can, you know, there's a whole bunch of times I've been out on the coast and seen either an eagle or an owl or what have you, and I'll just, you know, I'll appreciate it for being there, but I don't even try to do anything with an image because I know that the only way I'm going to come away with something is if I get too close to the animal. So just being aware of the equipment that I have and – And really if it's a, if it's going to be a, a, um, you know, if I don't have the right equipment, I just, again, appreciate the animal for being there for kind of showing itself to me for that amount of time. And then I, and then I, uh, I'll back off and go back to doing what I'm doing.
0: Yeah, definitely. I I feel like it's important to like know when to walk away from a photo opportunity just because of, you know, of course, like ethics or just even if the image won't be quite as satisfactory too with it. Mm Mm-hmm
1: yeah I mean it, it, I, I know I've said this a few times. It goes back to our initial convers our initial comment, which is if you're out there just for the image, I think you're out there for the wrong reason. Um,
2: uh-huh.
1: You know, we're out there to to I'm, I am not a person who meditates. Uh, I've tried it a few times and it just wasn't me for me. but I would say that the time I spend out there, and I'm out there almost every morning for an hour and a half, two hours, uh, is meditative for me and so it helps me be healthier for the rest of the day whether i come home with a, with an image or not and so uh, again if you're going out there just for the image i think you're going out there for the wrong reasons
0: yeah definitely it's like a meditation yep. in of itself too
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah absolutely yeah so in the similar vein as with ethics, uh, is like conservation, you know, a point that you really drive home in your work or are you more on the artistic side or is it even a little bit of both?
1: Maybe a little bit of both. I, I try to educate, um, you know, with some of my Instagram posts or Facebook posts, I'll try to explain, you know, what that bird is or, or why it's important to, um, uh, you know, or, or, you know, why the, you know, what is about that bird that is unique or what have you. Um, if it's, again, if it's a bird of sensitive or that I, that I feel like needs protecting, I, w- I won't put the location on it or or I'll just put New Hampshire or something like that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, tr- I try to do a little bit of both, but I, but I would say it's, um, I can't say I've done really anything, quote unquote, purposely around conservation, but as long as I'm going to be out there enjoying the space, I'm gonna let people know why it's worth enjoying and why we need to be careful of it, and so on
0: and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely.
2: Yeah.
0: So you have a background as a teacher. Uh, how have those skills helped you with your photography education?
1: You know, yeah, uh, that's a great question. It's interesting, when I, I do a lot of hiring, or I've done a lot of hiring, and when I talk to people, I'll ask them, you know, uh, you know, how did your job as a waitress back when you were in high school help you become a better teacher, or something along those lines? So it's funny that you're asking me the question, sort of flipping the script on me. Um, you know, uh, education to me is all about building relationships with the, with the people that you're, you're teaching and supporting. And, you know, whether we're learning how to take better pictures or we are teaching children how to read or write. It's, it's you know, I would challenge you guys to go back to your, think about some of the best teachers you've had or had in the past or the, some of the best experiences. And I guarantee none of them had anything to do with, boy, you know, Mr. Smith really knew how to write the objectives on the board better than everybody else or, you know, Mr. Smith really, uh, you know, was able to keep his uh, room nice and neat and tidy those things are important don't get me wrong but the people and the experiences that you remember are the people who made a difference in your lives and the experiences we we rarely remember a single lesson like I bet you neither of you remember the day you you learned about the Pythagorean theorem uh, <laughs> but you remember the teacher you know if that teacher made a difference in your life right or you maybe you remember the field trip or the experience that you had somewhere that made a difference in your lives. And so when I think about teaching, whether it's again teaching in a traditional school or teaching photography, it's about building relationships with people. It's about trying to create an experience for them that isn't about, uh, yeah, you know, we have to, you know, they have to understand exposure and say the exposure triangle or you got to understand this. But I also want them to really fall in love with whatever it is that we're trying to do and if that's photography great if it's being outdoors and taking pictures like secondary that's okay too um but it's about for me it's just about making sure that um the relationships are strong and the um you know the uh, the uh experiences that people are having is you know are are worth are worth their time or of value to them and and then the lessons are secondary to all that um they're part of it but if if those things don't come about if, if they don't have a good time they don't have an experience that is of value to them and they don't feel as though they've made a you know a, a new colleague or friend or relationship with somebody with myself or other people in the group then then it probably wasn't worth my time i didn't do a good job of it so so i think that's it and then of course i mean having taught and um, led uh, schools, what have you, for 25 years. I'm very comfortable teaching and helping and providing support and all the you know, all of the techniques around teaching. That's all very secondhand. Uh, presenting is something that I do all the time and very comfortable with. So, you know, all of that stuff, uh, I think, is just uh, ingrained in me now after 25 plus years of being in teaching. Um, so, yeah, it's just been a shift from uh, you know, teaching in a traditional school or teaching traditional lessons to teaching folks how to you know, create great images, hopefully.
0: Yeah, for sure. Definitely, yeah. And do you mm-hmm.
2: do a lot of Especially online like... stuff with that, or do you do more in-person?
0: Uh,
1: I've done a, a little bit of both. Um, uh, the online piece is super um, helpful for people and can be really um, uh, help you connect with people that you wouldn't have connected with in the past necessarily either close by or or far away you know it's it's uh, geographically agnostic which is really nice Um, the group that we went out with yesterday you know that was you know three hours of hanging out with eight people and then you know, enjoying the, the scene and helping people, you know, capture images of birds and understand bird behavior in a way to help them, you know, create great images. Uh, I couldn't do that um, remotely. So, you know, I, I tend to think the combination of the two is probably right. I don't think, I think people like the combination of the two. I think people um, like the convenience of the remote, of remote teaching and remote learning, but they also crave and seek out the physicality if you will of face-to-face workshops so um, I think they both could be really effective and they both can help people uh, get better at, their, at you know what they're trying to do so yeah I don't think it's a one or the other I think it's an and both.
0: It's good to have, I think, a good feel for both of them because, you know, each format kind of brings something different to the table. Like like you said, it's like being in the field, you know, that experience, is you can't really match that, you know, virtually. You need to be out there, you know, teaching people hands-on with certain kind of, you know, like camera techniques and actually taking the images, of course, too.
1: Yeah, exactly. I You know, for the first, um, say, 11, 12 years of my teaching career, I was in a traditional brick-and-mortar setting from teaching to administration. And for the last 13, 14 years, I've been administrating in a virtual school. And so shifting to that virtual space and teaching in the virtual space is something I've been doing for a, a number of years now. And so to do it um, you know, for this is, is really easy for me, whether one-on-one or in you know, larger groups, it's just, it's something that's come very naturally to me, I guess, because of my experience here but I would agree with you that, you know, even when I, um, you know, we would talk about this with regard to the virtual school that I'm involved with. If a student wants to be a chemist, they should be in a chemistry lab actually working with uh, the chemicals and not just doing it online. It can be, they can supplement and it can be a component of it. But at some point, you got to get your hands on these things. And I think photography is a, a big, you know, another good example of that you can watch all the youtube videos you want uh i that's how you know that's how i get inspired as well but until you take that camera out and try these different settings on your own i don't think it's really going to be cemented in a way that's going to become like muscle memory for you
0: yeah definitely it, it, photography is like a weird one, too, because it's like, you know, nowadays you don't necessarily need like a traditional college degree. Like you can watch a lot of YouTube videos and learn it that way or like attend one of your workshops, too, um, versus something like a biology degree, which you know I feel like is a little bit more different, too, with it.
1: Yeah, you know, but I would say this, that the one great thing, look, there's a lot of ups and downs to being as connected as we are to uh, to the Internet and so on and so forth. But the one um, great thing about the internet being connected to people so on and so forth has been the democratization of information and that is that uh, you know 20 20-25 years ago if you wanted to find out information you were going to learn that from quote-unquote an expert whether it be your teacher or your professor or someone in the field so on and so forth and getting access to that expert was not always the easiest thing. Now, you can find experts anywhere in the world at any time. And so, uh, yeah, um, just because I have a biology degree doesn't mean that uh, I know more biology than somebody who's studied it perhaps informally for 30 years. Um, and the same thing goes with photography. Um, certainly, having a formal education in photography helps with networking and connections and you know certainly it's a probably a more uh, straightforward way to go but there are so many people in the field professionally and amateur right now who uh, started out doing something else and picked up a camera one day and started learning about it and realized that this is what they want to do with the rest of their life and they never went to college for it so yeah I mean I I <laughs> you know the having your All the information of the world in your, at your fingertips is a double-edged sword because certainly there are some downsides to it. And I think generally speaking, uh, humans do a really poor job of, of vetting information, of, you know, figuring out whether information is, is, uh, is good or not. But, but at the same time, uh, it is a great way to learn and it's a great way to become an expert in something without that formal piece of paper. Um, and I think it's, uh, you know in that way it's been remarkable for people to learn how to, to to uh you know to become photographers um the other thing i would say about that really quickly is you know digital cameras have allowed us to experiment and learn and try new things at you know a very little cost we haven't both in time and money you you know in the field whether you got the shot you wanted or not um, it, you know, in the old days you'd have to go get the film developed and so on and so forth, and then you'd have to buy more rolls of film and all of that stuff. So, the instant feedback that you get from digital photography has allowed us to become much better photographers much faster than we would have in the past. And so, you know, the the explosion of information and the instant feedback have have really allowed digital photography to become, uh, you know. Uh, really anybody to become expert photographers, which is, you know, a great thing. And while it hasn't helped some areas so prints and so on and so forth, if there's no, it's tough to monetize that. There's a lot of people learning how to do this for the first time still. And so that's a great, uh, that's a great opportunity for folks to get into the business if they want to.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, those are all uh, great points
0: did... with just the information age of it too.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah. Did you start it all with uh, film, or have you always been digital?
1: (laughs) Well, I did have a film camera growing up. Uh, And the interesting – so great irony here. When I was in high school, I signed up for my – I wanted to take a photography course. And I I couldn't because it conflicted with my Spanish class that I needed to take. And so my parents said, no, I had to take Spanish because I – you needed – to take languages to get into college and so on and so forth so I did Uh, I still had a film camera I just really didn't know how to use it all that well and then um, you know fast forward I don't know handful of years and the next camera I bought was a digital camera so yeah I've had I mean (laughs) there are some people out there who say that they can't they wouldn't even know how to put film in a camera um and i'm not talking about like amateurs i'm talking about there are professional landscape photographers i know who have never put a roll of film in the camera which is fine <laughs> i'm not making fun of them at all uh, i at least have done that <laughs> but i can't say that i was very good at it back then uh really it's it's i've been a product of the uh digital age more than
2: anything yeah mm-hmm. yeah i think you know yeah Sometimes you know, I guess there can be benefits to starting with film, but I think, you know, getting in starting with that technology too—that more modern uh, technology—perhaps gives you an edge in other areas like editing and you know, computer, working with a computer and everything like that. So,
1: yeah, look, I'm not—I'm sure that there are amazing film photographers. I know there are amazing film photographers out there, and I know there are people who do both. And um, that's—it's just not. I don't have the time to to figure out both right now. So um yep. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a whole different devotion too, you know, <laughs> just getting the film, it's, you know. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's just a whole different thing and um so it's just yeah, I, I never really looked back at, at at doing that at all, so.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough so switching gears here a little bit uh you produce some calendars and some photo prints uh how's your experience been with both of those
1: You know the uh again the prints aren't really much of anything um in terms of um, sales or anything people aren't necessarily interested in in prints I do sell some locally and have some in you know various offices and things like that but that to me is you know it's a uh, it's those are things sort of um uh, a little icing on the cake, if you will. There's nothing I really can plan on. I know other people do a really good job of it and they, uh, market the heck out of it and they spend a lot of time and resources putting together that, that stuff. It's just not an area that I want to do. Uh, the calendars I've been doing for five or, you know, four or five years now. And, um, you know, those again, those, uh, I usually sell, uh, sell out every year. Um, I uh, I make a little bit of money doing those, but I also give away a lot to family, friends, people I've done work with. So my goal with those calendars uh, has never been to make a ton of money with them. I certainly get my money back and make a little bit of money with it and a little bit of profit, but I give so much away that... Um, you know, that, I, that I'm not very good when it comes to using it as a business piece. But it's, you know what, it's a great gift for me to give to people that, again, friends and family and then other people that I've done business with or people that I feel connected to in a way. And, um, you know, I, I really have no problem with, um, you know, doing that. So, uh, and they're also just fun to create. And, you know, mine hangs on my wall and, you know, uh, uh, every, every month, Uh, I get emails from people saying, Oh, I love May or I love June. So that's really cool. And it's a lot of satisfaction in that way as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great. It's like a gift that you see all year too with it.
1: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yep, absolutely. And then what I'll do is usually in, uh, uh, September, October, I'll start advertising for it and, um, you know, get enough pre sales so that I know that, uh, I can get them printed and. And then, um, you know, like I said, usually sell out sometime November, December, and just get them out to people. So it's, yeah, it's really cool. I like I like doing them. I like uh, I like uh, you know the feedback generally is pretty positive, so that's always good. If people are unhappy with it, I usually just send them their money back, uh, and I don't squabble too much with it because it's not worth that to me. Um, again, it goes back to that idea of. Hopefully, creating a good experience for folks. So, if people are just going to think of their experience with me as being angry about me not giving them, you know, a few bucks back because of they're not happy with the calendar, then to me that's not worth it. So, again, the calendar is not a. It's almost like a. Uh, gosh, I forget what they. I forget what Marker just called that, but it's. You know, I just kind of throw that out there for for people to. Uh, gosh, what did they call that?
0: A tester oh. or feeler.
1: No, it's like uh, you—you you, know—you're—you're you, you're not going to take a. Well, I don't take a loss, but you know, it's not going to be a big moneymaker for you. But it helps, you know, solidify relationships. It helps, you know, solidify my place as a photographer. So that when people, during the course of the year, try to remember, you know, who's that person, they all they can do is look at the calendar and they can think of me. So, I can't remember the term that marketers use for that, but uh, they have a special term for it.
2: Yeah, it's mm-hmm. right on the tip of my tongue. Yeah. I can't remember it either. But... Yeah, it <laughs> yeah. sounds very Lo- uh, familiar uh, too. <laughs> it's a
1: lost leader. Yeah, that's what it's called—a loss leader. Oh. Yeah, yeah. But again, right. I'm not t- I'm not taking a loss here. I get my, I make a little bit of money doing it, but I also look at it as a way for me to continue to uh, connect with people throughout the year. So, yeah, it's it, it works in that way.
2: Mm-hmm. Do, yeah, do awesome.
0: calendars feature like your bird images or your landscapes or both?
1: Well, that's that's always the question every year is how much I do. Uh, it's mostly landscape and because it's uh, – people uh, over the years have uh, really enjoyed the, the New England. I have people from all over the country that will order it be, that either used to live in New England or have a connection to New England. So, for example, it includes – it almost always includes – Uh, one or two of the lighthouses up here in New England Um, for relatively like uh, this year's October is Jessup's path up in Acadia National Park so places that people know uh, and have some connection to um, Neville Lighthouse up in Maine that's a really popular location for couples to get engaged and even married at and so a lot of times they have that connection to the location so there are some uh specific locations that I tend to include in most years which uh means I don't usually have a ton of space for birds. Um in fact this year I'm looking at the calendar right now I only have one bird in it. It's from May. It's of a yellow warbler. And but it's also a very um, you know scenic image as well. And so it's a, just a really nice I guess graphic for for may and so graphically it looked it came together nicely so it it isn't necessarily about the bird although it is about the bird it's just a nice scene as well so um i tend to the people that are going to buy that are not birders necessarily they're landscape or they're they're more interested in the new england landscape and so i'll sneak a bird or two in it uh if it includes some of the landscape but um generally speaking they're looking for scenes and landscapes from new england so that's
0: where i tend to go Mm -hmm. that's definitely good points there
2: yeah so as we uh,
0: wrap up the show here uh, Tony uh, is there any big photo trips you got planned or any shout outs or bits of advice you'd like to give
1: I'll be in Oregon uh, coming up at the end of the year um, with the Out of Chicago group uh, and I've now I have a really strong connection with them and I've done some presenting work for them and I've also been a participant in a whole bunch of their workshops they're a really good group so Big shout out to them. I also, um, let's see. So uh, if any sort of last minute pieces of advice or what have you, you know, I have found over the years that photography has given back to me more than I've given to it. Um, The, I go to bed every night. I can't wait to wake up the next morning to go to the location I'm going to uh whether it be for birds or landscape or what have you um and so that that excitement every day is something that you know photography has given to me and I don't know if I ever would have expected it to do that it has become less about creating the image than creating the experience um certainly I love to create great images and I'm not <laughs> I'm not suggesting that that is an important but it's about the experience much more than it ever is now about about the image and it hasn't always been that way, and so I think that that's come after, you know over time and so you know tomorrow morning I'll be at audience state Park um over here on the coast again looking for migratory birds because we're this is that's what we're doing now these days and you may or may not see them, but I'm gonna have a great walk and I'm gonna have a great two hours and so. Uh, that experience, again, that photography has afforded me is is more than I think I ever would have expected it to. And so I'm very grateful for that.
2: Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts tonight. They've been great and uh, very informative and very helpful to the audience. And uh, before we go here, if you just want to mention kind of your best social media platforms or website or whatever for people to check out.
1: Sure. Yeah. Thanks for giving me a chance. Uh, so I can be found at Tony com. So that's T O N Y, B A L D I S A R O. Tony dot And uh, on Instagram, it's probably the easiest is Tony Photography. But if you go to Tony com, all of my uh, can, links can be found there. So yeah, appreciate it. Thanks.
2: Yeah, that works. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks sure for so everybody. Check this page. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for watching the All Outdoors Photography Podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the video version on YouTube as well. You can subscribe down below, and we look forward to seeing you in the next one. Thank you.